This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to Talking TV. I'm Jake Cantor. The festive season is approaching at breakneck speed, which means it's time for us to bring you a guide to how the major broadcasters have performed in the rating stakes this year. And here's a clue. They won't be cracking open the champers at Horse Ferry Road. Also on the show, we hear why Danny Cohen got shirty with BBC Talent at the Corporation's Christmas Drinks. We've got an interview with Gogglebox creator Tim Harcourt. Plus, we bring you the results of the Women in Film and Television Awards. As well as all of that, we preview BBC One's stylish new period drama, The Great Train Robbery. So, it's full steam ahead. Joining me in the studio are broadcast editor Lisa Campbell... Uh, Women in Film and Television Chief Executive Kate Kinnamont and Faraz Osman, the Creative Director at multi-platform indie Lemonade Money. Welcome to you all. Hello. Hi. It's difficult to know where to start. Maybe with the BBC Christmas drinks on Wednesday, uh, where Danny Cohen uh, used his speech to hit back at talent who he said have engaged in a chorus of BBC bashing. This was this was punchy stuff, wasn't it, Lisa? It was, actually, and it was quite unexpected because usually at these drinks it's all very, oh, we've got fantastic things on at Christmas and here's a lovely showreel and we play lovely music. But he really took the opportunity to criticise the critics. Um, so it was quite ironic because he, yeah. he was annoyed at them for, for publicly criticising the BBC, but he's publicly criticising them Flip for back. doing so. But, however, he did have a good point to make, I think, you know, well-paid presenters who are having a dig at the BBC, joining the chorus as we're heading into charter renewal. And his point is, come and talk to us internally if, if you've got some issues. You know, if you're working for the BBC, at least at least start with that. I think someone like Roger Mosey, who's left the corporation and wants to wants to speak out publicly, um, I think that's harder to argue it's with. It's a different matter, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, he argued passionately about it. And I think it is all about getting people on side as, as we're heading to charter renewal in the next couple of years. There are enough critics and we yeah. don't really need people who are paid handsomely by the BBC to be joining in. Cheers, Lisa. Kate, you've got a you've got a run off very soon. So we should should we start with the Women in Film and Television Awards, uh, which are taking place this week. I believe you can talk us through some of the winners. Is that right? Yes, I'm absolutely delighted. Every year I see, wow, what talent there is amongst the women. But this year I see a very interesting pattern emerging. There are more women coming to the fore in really tough documentary areas. For example, Anna Hall, who worked for years on the British sex gangs who had been targeting vulnerable girls. At first, her programmes, it was decided not to broadcast them in case it incited racial hatred, which was a very, very serious matter too. But 17 years later, she's made the programmes which have actually changed the law for any of us, you know, to achieve something like that. It's fantastic. And who's won the the Lifetime Achievement Award this year? Well, it's an amazing woman who all of us know. She's a real household name going back 50 years. It's the wonderful, irrepressible Angela Rippon. And it's very interesting when you think Angela Rippon, we will put her clip reel together for the awards and you might imagine that mainly it would be quite static shots of somebody reading the news or somebody doing documentary programmes. She has actually got so much broadcast footage of her dancing, 
That woman can dance. It's a dance fest. Yes, yeah, a dance fest. It's an Angela Rippon dance fest. <laughs> and talk us through some of the other TV highlights. I mean, uh, can you can you name any other winners? Yes. Well, we have uh, Danielle Lux of CPL Productions, who's done massive uh, amounts of comedy. She's won the Barclays Business Award. They're having a good time of it, aren't they, CPL, they, at the moment? Oh, they are doing so well. And James Corden... Uh, is actually breaking out of his writing group to run along to the awards. The man's not even having lunch today. He's so busy, but he'll be up on the stage. He presents A League of Their Own, which is produced by CPL. Is that right? Yes, exactly. We also have the wonderful Clio Barnard, who made The Selfish Giants. They say that she's the new Ken Loach, and maybe she is, but it's a really exquisite film that anybody could take their whole family to at Christmas time. It's very, very moving. Lisa, what do you make of the list? I think it's great. And I, I think you're right. Um, the, the social campaigning is, is a real strong trend this year because you've got Penny Wilcock as well, who's who's won for One Mile Away. And, and obviously they've had amazing success ending gang violence in Birmingham and there hasn't been a death since the that documentary was made, which which is incredible. And obviously they're going around the country and, and touring and screening and doing various education initiatives. Um, and then there's another, there's the... Thames Torso story as well, isn't there, Kate? That's right, with Ronka Phillips. And again, it was one of those cases. Do you remember a few years ago, a, a little child's torso was found in the Thames. Nobody could find any trace of anything about the identity of the child who, who might have been responsible. And Ronka actually then spent years tracking it down. She went to Nigeria, where her family originally came from. And uh, she found there were all these pastors who whip up hatred. It's all about um, child sacrifice. And it had actually moved from Africa. That whole culture had come to London. In this particular case, uh, Ronka had actually moved a little bit ahead of the, the police. And she was thanked by the, um, the children's minister in the African area where she had um, tracked all of this down. She found the child's identity. Which all makes it sound quite worthy, Kate, but actually it's one of the most fun award ceremonies, I think, out there. And, and didn't you sell tables in record time this year? Well, we did last year. It took 28 minutes to sell a 1,000 tickets on our uh, website. This year, it took five minutes and I was absolutely thrilled until I discovered that the Monty Python team had sold out theirs in 43 seconds. <laughs> so we've got a whole new record for next year. <laughs> well, it sounds like a stellar list and uh, we wish you all the best with the bash. I hope it goes well. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jake. OK, then moving on. The latest issue of Broadcast brings you extensive coverage of how the major channels have performed in the viewing stakes this year. After chewing over the numbers, it was obvious that Channel 4 was going to be thrust into the spotlight. The station's all-time consolidated share has tumbled 11.4% to 5.8% between the 1st of January and 22nd of November this year, meaning it endured by far the toughest year when compared to its rivals. Elsewhere, there were improved performances for ITV and Sky One, while BBC Two enjoyed gains across its peak schedule. BBC One also experienced a difficult year, however, suffering due to year-on-year comparisons with the London 2012 Olympics. Faraz, what do you make of all of this? It's incredibly interesting. I think that it's um, uh, it makes a great front-page broadcast, and I'm sure your anonymous commenters will be having a, a great afternoon. We do a lot of random act stuff for Channel 4 at Lemonade Money, and... You know, some of it doesn't always rate as well as we'd like it to, but I don't really think that's the point. I think that there's a lot of instances where Channel 4 are doing some really interesting things in other spaces. And and as part of an independent production company, I'm 
a bit reluctant to kind of judge Channel 4 budget purely based on its ratings. I think that we need to make sure we're celebrating all the other things that they're doing. They're, they've done extremely well in the broadcast nominations and have had a lot of really interesting shows out this year. Um, and also, I think that the, the market's changing significantly as well. Um, more people are watching video than ever before, which I think is significant. And ratings are incredibly interesting and they're, they're part of how we put together the market for this industry, but also we've got things like trends now. We've got brands and they're all coming coming up to the fore. And it, I think that there's, there's, a, there's a bigger discussion to be had about how relevant ratings are moving forward. Yeah. And I think this is part of that. But, you know, across the board, it's, it's encouraging. I mean, Sky, Sky have done really well. I think that they've, they've done better than certainly I expected them to do this year. And it's, it's great to see that they're picking up and, and staying stable. Uh, Channel 5 has stayed stable as well. And I think it's all, it's, it all makes really interesting reading in, in a market that's continuing to grow and, and starting to look very, very different. We've got to start looking at what the whole market means. I think that once you start doing that and see how well a lot of Channel 4 shows do on Twitter, on on demand, um, the fact that we're all talking about them when things like Utopia come out, when things like Plane Crash happen, it kind of demonstrates that actually it's not just about these ratings. I absolutely take that point. And it's clear that there are creative successes. I mean, we're talking about one later on with Gogglebox. But ultimately, Lisa, Channel 4 has still got to sell airtime. And to do that, it's got to have eyeballs. This is a problem. It's a, it's a problem for programme makers, for Ofcom, for the board. And this is not about a big dramatic headline in broadcast. This is about the channel which is at the heart of the independent production community and should be at the heart of creativity. And the numbers are pretty bad. And you compare them to other channels, they've all increased and, and Channel 4 hasn't. And I think that, you know, instead of being taking a defensive position and saying, well, you know, we've we've been nominated for all these awards. Well, you know, that's fine. But there is a budget of six hundred and eight million pounds. And if you can't get a few programmes shortlisted, then there are really yeah. problems. You know, there's been more investment in original content this year, you know, tipping Channel 4 into the red. And it just doesn't seem to be bearing fruit. Um, You know, Channel 4 had a problem with advertisers at the start of the year. There was the big standoff with Group M who wrote to clients saying Channel 4's losing share far more quickly than its um, commercial rivals. It was forced to correct that, but it's now, you know, Channel 4 is on less solid ground. So I think what we need from Channel 4 now is to to really sort of acknowledge this and say, okay, but we're doing X, Y, Z. You know, here's our strategy, here's our vision, here's, here's the identity sort of going forward so that we can... Stop making excuses, particularly about the family of channels, because that's been mm. the, the defence in the past has been, well, don't worry about the main channel because the portfolio is fine. Well, actually, the family of channels is also down. You know, it's down 4%. Are we seeing some green shoots with the likes of Educating Yorkshire? And, yeah, well, and absolutely. Others? Yeah. I mean, and of course, you've got to bear the Paralympics into account, but we, we have. And, um, you know, even before the Paralympics, show is declining 13% and 11% in peak. You know, in the autumn, things have picked up because of Educating Yorkshire. So there have been some some green shoots and things like Homeland but actually now Educating Yorkshire is off air the declines are happening again and it's it's down 4%. I know you worked at Channel 4 it was a, it was a while ago how are ratings considered at Channel 4? Is it all part of that wider creative mix that you were talking about earlier? What I would say is that as part of Lemonade Money what we do is that when we're approaching developments now we're not approaching them and looking at them going is this going to rate? Is this going to rate at 9pm or at 10pm or 11pm? Is this going to get us, say, an increase in, in share? We don't do that as, as part of writing developments now. What we do is is we look at it and go, is this going to be something that people are going to talk about? Is this going to be a brand? Is this going to be something that people want to tune in and watch? Is this something that people are going to be loyal to? And if you look at how 
advertising and brands work now across across the world and across other markets, people are less interested in how many eyeballs you get to a certain thing. They're more interested in people talking about them and they're more interested in people being fans of their brand and being loyal to them. You know, we need to start thinking about what that means and what that looks like. Because as new players enter the market, there aren't just traditional broadcasters. I mean, if you look at what Netflix are doing, Netflix don't release any of their ratings. No one really knows how well House yeah. of Cards has done or how but Breaking Bad has done. It's Channel 4's within its remit that it has a, you know, a, a share to the main channel. I mean, it has to deliver on its remit. And it isn't funded by the licence fee, so it has to be commercially successful. Absolutely. So it has to work. Yeah, I think, I think we could carry on with this for quite a while. <laughs> But we might have to leave it there and move on to the BBC again for a little bit. Because this week we've heard from both BBC One controller Charlotte Moore and News Director James Harding. Charlotte spoke passionately at a BAFTA event about keeping BBC One broad and bold and had a few commissions up her sleeve as well, including a three-part access documentary on fast food chain KFC. Lisa, are we starting to see Charlotte's influence at BBC One now? Well, I think it's still early days, isn't it? But we've, mm. you know, we've seen a, f- a few more commissions recently. So there's, you know, the Obdoc series. There's the the comedy, the Stan and Ollie biopic, which I think sounds sounds brilliant. And Greymates, which is a hat trick comedy, which um, is, I think, a great attempt to have more diversity on screen. And I think, you know, Last Tango in Halifax proved that there is a real appetite for for older faces. And and this is you know, hopefully we'll deliver some of that and some humour as well. I mean, there seems to be a real access documentary trend at the moment uh, with this KFC documentary. And broadcasters reported this week that BBC Two's got access to British Airways. Uh, is this something that uh, you well, like to watch? I think it's interesting what, what Ben said at Channel 5 as well, that, that we've got to be a little bit careful that we don't go into a space where we're just, let's rig everything and, and see what happens. Let's rig the whole country and move, turn all CCTV cameras into, into broadcast cameras. But I, I think that there is... Some of the most interesting stories around the UK come from real people's lives. And, and and as we reach an interesting space with new technology where we can put these cameras in places that don't feel as invasive and, and we can kind of see how people actually behave in different places rather than setting up dramatic interpretations of what actually is going on, I think that we're getting into a really interesting space around the stories that are being told. But I do think we have to make sure that we're continuing to focus on good stories that really demonstrate what's going around. around so content over platforms. I'd like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> On that point, James Harding, the BBC News Director, made a big point of talking about disseminating BBC News's content across different platforms amid what he described as the galloping technology revolution. I mean, how important is that? From my own personal point of view, I get pretty much all of my news via Twitter and via via technologies that didn't exist five years ago. I think that we're getting to a space of maturity with a lot of those platforms where people don't feel like it's a novelty, they feel like it's an actual service. And I think it's only just right that, that the BBC deliver their news in, in lots of different what ways. What do you reckon to its performance at the moment across those platforms? Do you engage with the BBC on Twitter? Yeah, I you know, I, I engage with the BBC in, in a number of different ways, um, on Twitter, online, on TV, and, and I, I, that, it feels that that's right. I mean, obviously there are questions about that influence and and how it's going to disrupt the market. But I think that people expect to see news. They trust news that comes from the BBC. And so, you know, with Twitter having so much noise across the way, when you see something come through from the BBC, it feels like it's verified and it feels like it's come from a trusted source. And 
that feels like what the BBC should be doing. Yeah. He does seem to be, you know, he's added in a, a load of new roles, hasn't he? I think, is it three three yeah. new roles, including a, a deputy? A new news editor. Yeah, which feels a bit like a, a newspaper structure. And also, given that there's still another 20 million savings to find, everyone else is, is sort of stripping out layers of management. And James Harding is adding them in. That does feel like a bit of a, uh, a dichotomy. And He's got a real problem rallying the troops because the backdrop to all of this is still these bullying allegations that are flying around the newsroom. And it's still a real issue uh, over at BBC, isn't it? Yeah. You know, bullying, diversity, impartiality. In fact, I I mean, he listed them and and I think they're aware of them. So I think with all of the people that, that are new in post from Tony Hall, Charlotte Moore to James Harding, you know, they're all promising more diversity and change and, and, and everything else. And of course, we're just going to have to hope that they deliver on this now. Wait and see. Uh, Feels like a good place to leave it. Uh, That's your news for this episode. My thanks to Kate Kinnaman, Faraz and Lisa. Next up, meet the people who have become famous for watching the stuff that you make. Here they are, getting stuck into countdown. Passive. Passion. Passion. Was F Spasson Spasson Spass Fins Fins P Passion Piss Passion P A S S I O N Piss is on it P I double F Yes, that was, of course, Sandy, Sandra and Leon from Channel 4's Gogglebox, the show where we're invited to snoop on the British public watching television. It's a simple conceit that proved divisive when the first series aired earlier this year, but now the Studio Lambert format is nearing the end of its second run, a fire has been lit under its popularity with viewers and critics. The Telegraph called it the show making Britain feel great, while Gogglebox's stars have been spotted hanging out with Nick Grimshaw and Rufus Hound, among others. So the couch potatoes have become hot potatoes. Joining me now is the man responsible for this hoopla. It's Studio Lambert's head of development, Tim Harcourt. Welcome, Tim. So we've discussed Channel 4's ratings blues at the top of the show, but uh, Gogglebox is a clear creative success. Um, Should we start at the beginning? Can you talk us through what prompted the idea and how you sold it into Channel 4? I'd been conscious, probably like a lot of people, that you know the way we watch TV isn't perhaps as passively as some people would imagine. But that was something that I genuinely contemplated doing, but I put it to one side, like, you know, a lot of things. The actual moment of insight when I thought, oh my God, it would be really interesting to cut between different people watching a shared stimulus was during the London riots when I was watching Sky News and BBC News, mostly Sky News, actually, to be honest. Um, And I'm sure a lot of other people were. And the way we were watching the news... Um, and talking about it and reacting and sort of the sense of panic as well, um, I think, in a lot of people's homes. I, I all of a sudden thought, oh, my God, it would be fantastic if we were in people's houses watching people watch this yeah. news go out and we're intercutting between their reactions and different people of different backgrounds. So it was um, that sense of shared experience. It's that sense of shared, shared experience um, and of people, um, you know, all responding in interesting ways. Um, and when I, you know, I thought about it quite long and hard. And when I first joined Studio Lambert, I think in the first few weeks, I sort of pitched this as a slightly mad idea to Stephen. I said, "Oh, wouldn't it be interesting to intercut between people 
watching the news and watching television and try and turn it around as quickly as possible to reflect the sort of the national conversation. Was Channel 4 always the first destination? In my mind, I, 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 don't, I couldn't imagine anyone else buying that show. It felt, it felt like it was Channel 4 or bust. So was it David Glover who took it and championed it at Channel 4? I had a meeting with David Glover, Ralph Lee, uh, Mark Raphael, and Aisha Raphael as well, um, all, at, all at one time. My four first, commissioners four in one room. <laughs> it was my first pitch at Channel 4 with Studio Lambert. Stephen had arrived off the plane from America. Tanya was there, and I think um, Freya Sampson was there as well. There was sort of four of us on one side of the desk, four on the other, which I've never really been in a pitching situation yeah. similar to that. I pitched the idea, and I sort of said, oh, you keep asking us where the national conversation is going on and we think we found it we think it's in front of the television and we want to capture this national conversation as well as what people really think about tv in a sort of a review rig hybrid they ordered four parts originally and it, it wasn't sort of universally popular it, it, it took a little while to bed in what convinced them to go to a 13 part series well, it didn't go straight to a four-part um, four series. David Glover actually gave us a chunk of money and we went to test the concept. Yeah. And so Tanya and myself went away and found a cast of which a lot were poor, but Leon and June still remain and they were in that initial cast. And we shot hours of footage, hours of footage, and we tried it different ways. We tried being totally passive. We tried sort of producing it gently and we found that actually the, the passive producing just sort of watching and then having to you know really mine all that footage for the gems was was the most authentic and the best way and we cut together a mixed audience watching three different shows i think it was embarrassing bodies the queen's jubilee which led to some absolutely probably unbroadcastable moments <laughs> and uh we have to show us those one and, day <laughs> and the voice I, I, I still have the tape locked away in the studio lambert <laughs> vault and, and tanya and i spent three weeks in the edit sort of giving it sort of the identity, I suppose, it has now. It had a countdown element, which no one liked at all. And when David Glover saw the tape, he said, oh, I love it. Uh, make it less KFC, because it had a, like maybe a little bit too much entertainment glitz in it. Make it a little more authentic. And then, to be fair to him, you know, we really brainstormed it over lots and lots of sessions, over over the tone and how it should be. And, he, you know, his passion and, and, and mine and, and Tanya's and Stephen's sort of led it to that initial order of four Although we did a dummy run before that, that order of four when it was called uh, I think it was called Watch with Britain, which I don't know. I mean, it may have still worked with that title, but I think Gogglebox is uh, a much better title. Yeah, um, it's a bit more pithy, isn't it? <laughs> a bit more pithy, and uh, and so yeah, then, then we did the run of four. So it was actually quite a yeah, it was a longer circuitous route. To it was a long four. gestation, clearly. Um, that then it's like that's a whole year between sort of pitching to yeah. to those four episodes transmitting. Can you tell us a bit about how it's made? Because I'm always intrigued by that when I'm watching it. There's clearly remote cameras in the room. Could you talk us about that process and how you go about selecting shows? With the team sort of plan ahead with selecting shows. I suppose they go for a mixture of the big shows that everyone's going to talk about that are sort of live and reflect the week that's gone and things that interest them ahead you know, they can see coming down the line. So it's kind of a mixture of, of that and the news. And I think the news is really important for it. For it to, a, I like it because it's true to the original idea. And B, because it, it really does locate it in time. There's about 14, I suppose, families or, or, or groups of people. And Tanya Alexander, who makes it sort of week in, week out. And Paul Broadbent, the series producer, kind of kill themselves by sending round uh, their PDs two or three days at each house 
filming these people watching about six hours of two TV over over two days. So they watch it as it TXs or they is it, is it a bit of a mixture? It's, it's a mixture. Yeah, it's a mixture, and and, and the, the programs are sort of agreed with the audience and the production team, so it's kind of a reflection of what they might watch, and you can kind of see that. That you know, Leon genuinely does enjoy Made in Chelsea, and the initial take <laughs> yeah. shot. He, he went, talks fluently about it. <laughs> yeah, he, know, he knows all their names. I don't know any of their names really, but um, Leon puts me to shame. So there's a team of PD with a researcher. They have two Robo cameras, and you know, it's kind of like sitting and wait. It's like fishing, I imagine. They sit and wait, and they sort of log what they think are the best bits. But when it comes to the edit, I'm sure Tanya and Paul would say that often what seem like the best bits, you know, when you're recording it, them happen aren't, and they have to mine even harder for those better bits. And then it goes through an incredible, you know, edit craft process, of which Chris Hooker is kind of the finishing editor, and, and I, you know, I think he does an absolutely fantastic job yeah. in, in shaping that for Paul and Tanya every week and turning it round and on an insanely tight schedule. It's sort of signed off on a Tuesday late night and then it goes out on the Wednesday, so it is incredibly tight. Brilliant. And, and casting is clearly key. How did you go about finding your contributors? Well, I think it's been well publicised that um, Dom and Steph were on Four and a Bed, and I think early on we felt we didn't have that that voice, that sort of what I'd call, I suppose, an upper middle class English voice in the programme. And we took them off one of our own shows because they had been brilliant characters. Very early on, we had sort of types of and sorts of people that we wanted to find. And we made a few mistakes, I think, when we shot the initial tape and we knew who we didn't want. And we didn't want people, you know, self-appointed entertainers. I think one of the beauties of the show is... You know, everyone remembers that first Big Brother series and it sort of came back and, and you had a completely new cast and you had to start again and fall in love with them all over again. Ours can, you know, gently refresh. I mean, you'll see faces in this series that you saw last series. And I, I mean, I seem sprinkled. to see new faces all the time. Every time I watch it, I feel like I've uh, experienced something new. Yeah, the, the cast, they are casting sort of constantly looking for interesting people. But, you know, the, the people who think they're funny are going to be amazing on TV and on Twitter. You know, there's a lot of people saying, God, I should be on that. I'm hilarious in front of the TV. I'm sure, you know, Tanya breaks into cold sweats when she thinks of uh, having to audition them <laughs> and put them on the show. The authenticity is key. I mean, obviously, these people are watching themselves go out on TV and that's, the show's porous in that sense. I think that's even more important that they that they they mine those that those hours of, and reams of uh, of footage they have yeah. from watching TV and sort of surprise the cast with what they actually pick and put on the TV constantly. And I know that's something that Tanya is very passionate about doing. And more to come, more to come indeed. Brilliant. Well, thank you for joining us, Tim. It's, it's been a it's appreciated. Gogglebox has two more episodes left to run on Wednesday nights at ten pm. Finally, this episode, we turn our attentions to the programme soon to be beamed towards your fizzogs. Joining me again are Lisa Campbell and Faraz Osman. Uh, we start with Watch's latest magic format, The Happenings. Looking to build on Dynamo's wizardry, the four-part series gives Scottish magicians Barry Jones and Stuart MacLeod the platform to dupe unsuspecting residents of towns across the UK and US into believing the unbelievable. Produced by Objective and Crook Productions, the action gets started with mysterious otherworldly happenings in Stamford. Now, showing magic tricks on the radio isn't easy, but have a listen to this. Recently I've recorded some magnetic disturbances in the atmosphere, and animals, especially dogs, are the, the first ones to pick up on this stuff. Um, I want to ask your dog a question. I've just got a board here, and I want to 
write down a simple maths problem, but I don't want you to say anything, okay? Okay. Let's see if, if your dog can get this. Okay, doggy, do the math. How many barks is that? There's five barks. That's incredible. And of course, he'd written on the board two plus three equals. Uh, and the dog, as you heard, managed to prove his maths was uh, better than mine, at least, uh, which had me amazed. Were you, were you convinced, Lisa? When it first started, you know, the whole premise of there's a UFO in your village and trying to convince everyone, and we, the audience, know it's not true. So I struggled to sort of get into it immediately. Yeah. But... It did suck me in. I thought, I think they're a great pair. I think they're a great new find. And it's lovely to see, you know, young new talent in this way. And I think they were very convincing as documentary makers in the way that they talk to people. And they, they did convince them. I thought the trick with the tinfoil and he puts tinfoil on the car window and then manages to somehow put his hand through it into a hole and unlock the that door. Was great. I thought that was amazing. It was, it was a lot of fun. I think the most impressive trick, however, was how they managed to get aliens to abduct anything in Stanford over the age of 25 from a diverse background. It seemed that everyone living there was was pretty and young and was dressed in Jack Wills. And I think it was I think that was that was particularly impressive. It's, It's a lot of fun. And I think that there's what's really neat about it is that you feel like you're part of the magician circle. You feel like you know that it's a trick and they're playing. you're part of the gang that's playing tricks on others. That's true. The problem with it, though, is that you don't know if you can buy into the tricks or not because you know they're fake from the outside because they're faking other people. So yeah. you're kind of going, am I believing this trick? Am I trying to figure out what's going on? Um, if you do like watching television and like watching magic shows and seeing if you can figure out how those tricks are done, this is the show for you because it's quite easy to figure out how these tricks are done in the way that yeah. it's put together. But yeah, I would I, say... I agree with that. So you, you're in on the act but then you're not in on all of it. And so it's a very strange position to be in as a viewer. You're not quite sure what what you're supposed to think. There has to be a bit of a willing suspension of disbelief, doesn't there, with these things, which I struggle with sometimes, I have to admit. But With magic in particular, yeah, yeah. that becomes even more difficult. Yeah, But it's a lot of fun. And I would say stick with it because the last trick is, is great. The, the last trick is superb. Some of the onlookers who were filming at the time looked genuinely shocked by it and shook up, weren't they? But the problem I have with that, though, is that I don't know... It felt like the hand of the producer was there. It felt like, well, who's in on this and who's not in on this? Are some of those guys in on it or not in on it? And there's this kind of like the magic of television is also there as a layer. And it's difficult to kind of separate those two things. You know, maybe you're just a cynical producer and you can <laughs> exactly see behind well, it. But yeah. as a viewer, I was sitting there thinking, they, they were they looked scared, some of them. They, gen- you know, they, they genuinely believed it. And I believe their reaction. That was a, that was a genuine scream, I think. <laughs> yeah. but, but keep your tongue in your cheek. And I think this is magic to, to laugh at and not be Yeah, I agree. It's interesting that you say that because I think it sits well with the rest of the shows on watch. Take... The Incredible Mr. Goodwin, for example, this is a lot less earnest than that. And it benefits as a result of it, I think. Mm, It does. Fantastic. Let's move on then. Uh, Last but not least, we have The Great Train Robbery, BBC One's drama from Chris Chibnall, the creator of ITV's mega hit Broadchurch. Unfolding over two 90-minute episodes, it tells the story of one of the biggest heists in British history from the perspective of both the robbers and police. We start with A Robber's Tale, which stars Luke Evans as criminal mastermind Bruce Reynolds and follows his gang's plot to hijack a Glasgow to Euston mail train in 1963. Here is Reynolds counting the takings from another of his gang's stings. All that risk, all that planning, but four poxy grand. Ain't a lot, is it? This was supposed to be the big one. Look at it. How long's that going to last us? We'll do better next time. What we got now, huh? 
all those stupid bloody expenses. I mean, the, the costumes, the, the wheels, the stupid bloody moustaches. Went to plan. Four grand each, Bruce. It was your tip-off, Charlie. Yeah. Well, someone's grass, then. Stop looking for shadows. We did our job, we were just unlucky. Every time? No, mate. Not every time. I won't let it. Faraz, this feels like a very familiar story, but it had me, I have to say. What, what did you make of it? We talk a lot about how we're in the golden age of, of TV drama at the moment, and I think this has just struck gold once again. It's it's so much fun. It's really, really gripping. The the pacing of it is brilliant. Every time you think that you got away with it, you, there, there's another twist and there's another turn. You know, it's it's a 90-minute long drama and I think there's two parts of it as well that's um, right I'm, so the, I'm the police tale forward. follows this one and uh, you know I'm intrigued I want to know can't, what happens can't wait Even for the though, next one already yeah. it doesn't feel like 90 minutes it feels like you're you're, you're really getting to, to go through the pace of it there was a uh, another drama this year that, that might rhyme with fading mad but it's it had a train robbery in that as well and I think that this is the closest that we've got to to equaling uh, equaling that that train robbery. Um, I think we should put them next to each other and see if we can have an. Are you of are you doing spoilers on the Talking TV podcast for us? Possibly. I'm just I'm just saying <laughs> that is not another, allowed. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's another very popular show that has a train in it as yeah. well in one of the final seasons, and I think that we should be putting them both into a nomination for best train robbery in the next broadcast award because because maybe you know, yeah we'll dedicate an award they, to train they, robberies. They were great, there? but it, this I mean this is excellent. The acting is excellent. The sound design in it is brilliant. And it just looks absolutely beautiful. The music um, is great. I thought the music made it to me. It felt like a bit of a mixture of, uh, well, it was a cross between Mad Men and Ocean's Eleven. I thought. Yeah. What, did, what was your views, Lisa? Wonderful. Really <laughs> loved it. Um, I mean, you've got the dream team of Julian Jarrell, director, and Chris Chibnall, the writer, and of course the production company, uh, World Productions. So that was the are, team that was behind United, which is right. the BBC Two single on the Busby Babes 1958 air crash. Which was quality. It was absolutely fantastic. And you've got all you know the hallmarks of quality drama here. From the very opening, so artfully reimagined the story with you know wonderful scene of the line of men in their bowler hats, the close-ups of the you know 60s clock faces, the typography, and the perfect symmetry of those two vintage cars in the foreground. It was just stunning. Genuinely, I've watched that opening four times. Brilliant. All the directors in our office, I've, I've kind of sat them down and said, watch this, this is amazing. They've all been waxing lyrical about it. It's, it's an absolutely excellent opening to a drama and it will have you from that moment right to the end. And barely any Ronnie Biggs at all. Do you think that works in its favour? Yeah, I think that you get to about 10, 15 minutes in and you're kind of going, which of these guys is, is Ronnie Biggs? What's going on there? But I think that they've made the right decision because that character in that story can can probably take away from the rest of, of what is essentially a, a buddy film of, of those guys all getting together and trying to pull off a, a huge heist, which I think is the bigger story. And I think it's great that they've taken back from that slightly and kind of gone, this was a gang that, that pulled something off that was incredibly audacious. Yeah, that's right, because we haven't, we haven't really seen it as a whole like this. I mean, we, we think we know the story, but we don't know the specifics. Yeah. And what we've seen in the past is Phil Collins' Buster, and you know, which was one of them. And then you had Mrs Biggs, which obviously the wife so I think seeing it in its entirety like this is it, it does feel you know new and you're sort of learning things about it and Ronnie Biggs only played a minor role didn't he and there's a real sort of amateurish era that, that sort of comes from this you know it almost feels sort of slightly innocent or at least kind of justified you know they're, they're fighting against the establishment who you know they've had got nothing from them you know you've got your your villains are the villains and the cop, coppers yeah, are the coppers and you know story. it's really old school yeah. and they kind of meet in the pub together you know it's, uh, it, it, is, it has got that real Ocean's Eleven feel about it. it it really feels like they're they're a group of guys you kind of 
you kind of want them to get away with it, which mm. is part of the fun. But I would say it's got possibly the most ridiculous and dramatic unscrewing of a light bulb in any <laughs> any show I've ever seen in my life. So, you know, they probably the, hammed the that up a little bit too situation, far. Situation, yeah. I think we'll leave it there for now. Thanks, guys. The Great Train Robbery sets off on Wednesday, the 18th of December at 8pm. So, we've reached our final destination, uh, hopefully with all our valuables and faculties intact. It's been another whopping show, so my thanks again go to Lisa Campbell, Faraz Osman, Kate Kinnaman and Tim Harcourt. Uh, Keep listening to us on SoundCloud and iTunes, and if your colleagues are in the dark about our talking TV travails, well, enlighten them. They won't want to miss our festive special in a fortnight. Uh, My name's Jake Cantor, the producer was Matt Hill. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 